This will be the last of our Wednesday night uh, studies in this series we've called Heroes, and I hope that they've been helpful to you. So many of these Old Testament uh, heroes uh, have parts of their lives that are very, very familiar to us. We can list off some of these names, and we can think of some of the the main things we know about them. I hope that as we've gone through it, maybe you've been reminded or or uh, surprised to find out some of the parts of their lives that we don't talk about quite as much. And I hope that throughout this series, uh, if we've done anything, we've tried to week by week say each of these heroes, men, women, young, old, prophets, priests, kings, boat builders, everything in between, these were not the people that God's people really needed. They were pointers, and God used them in great ways, but they were not the Savior. They were not the Messiah, and their lives and their ministries and their teachings in different ways pointed forward to Jesus. And so we're going to try to do the same thing tonight with Nehemiah. How many of you have heard of the website called Ranker? R-A-N-K-E-R. Anybody heard of this? Not many of you, a few of you. This is like for me, this is like the infinite abyss of rabbit hole on the internet that I could just go in and never come out. The whole website is rankings and lists, and it's all crowd, crowd, uh, crowd rankings is what they call it. So you've heard of like crowdfunding sites, crowdsource sites, where people sort of contribute and a project gets done because a bunch of people kick in. Well, these are rankings not done by experts or anybody who knows anything, but voted on by anyone who has access to the internet. And you get on and they say, okay, what are the top ten bands of all time? And they throw a whole bunch on there and you get to hit up or down on each one and it tabulates all the rankings and comes up with the the aggregate list. And there was a couple of lists I came across while I was looking at this site a couple of weeks ago that were of interest to me on the area of leadership. One that was interesting was the most important leaders in world history. And I just want you to think about how big the world is and how long history is. And this was the the list. George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Alexander the Great, Thomas Jefferson, Napoleon Bonaparte, Augustus Caesar, Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, Charlemagne, Julius Caesar, and Mahatma Gandhi. Now, put this next one up. I just want to point out how American this list is. You know who voted on this. Three of the top, you're telling me, three of the most important leaders. Out of the top four, three of them were Americans. That's the way Americans think, right? We're the most important. Of course, our leaders got to be at the top of the list, three or four. Forget all of ancient history, human history, different civilizations, different empires, people that were around many, many years longer than the United States has been around. We're going to put our guys up at the top. Off of this, they had a list that was the most important leaders in U.S. history, and I found that pretty interesting, too. Uh, Washington, Lincoln, Jefferson, Madison, Thomas Paine, Ben Franklin, Eleanor Roosevelt, lady made the list, uh, Patrick Henry, Donald Trump. Some of you read number nine, and you, some of you are thinking, why is he not higher on the list? And some of you are thinking, why is he on the list at all? And afterwards, we'll have a wrestling match between the two sides. We'll fight it out. And then MLK. So there's your list. Here's the reality. In the United States today, people are fascinated with leadership. People are fascinated with the idea of leadership. And I'll give you a few examples of this. John Maxwell. You've probably heard of John Maxwell. He has made a bajillion dollars 
writing the exact same book on leadership and putting a different cover on it and publishing it and saying, oh, look, my five laws are now six laws, or now they're four laws, or now they're three laws. or It's the same ideas over and over and over again, and people love it. They buy his books like crazy. They pay money to go to his conferences. They pay money to have him come speak at conferences. They're fascinated. If you get on Amazon... We all know you can buy anything on Amazon. Amazon has over 60,000 books available under the category of leadership. 60,000 books. That's an awful lot of people chiming in to tell you what you need to know about leadership. What's interesting, when you start to read some of those books, nobody really agrees on a definition of leadership. That's kind of important if you're going to understand it. What is it? And you get all sorts of different answers from all sorts of different perspectives on what leadership actually is. Uh, You can go to university. Many of you know people who went to school to get a degree in management. But now, another popular degree, growing in popularity at many, many business schools, are degrees in leadership. Different than degrees in management. Not the same thing at all. But you can now find many schools offering degrees in leadership. Nehemiah fits into all this obsession with leadership. And many people, we're in this context, in this place, in this time when people are just thinking leadership, leadership, leadership. What is it? How do we do it? How can I be better at it? Many people turn to the book of Nehemiah and they say, here is a book about leadership. Nehemiah is a book about leadership. Some of you have probably heard Bible studies or sermons or talks about how Nehemiah is this great leader. And the one thing we're supposed to do as God's people is look back at this story of Nehemiah and figure out how to be better leaders. Here's the reality. Nehemiah was a great leader. There's no question about that. And there's many leadership principles you can learn when you read through the book. For example, he led a brand new initiative something that hadn't been done before. He got it going from the ground up, and that takes leadership. He formed work plans, right? That may dip into management a little bit, but he was the one who led in that. He put a team together. He didn't just go out on his own, but he got other people to go with him and to follow him. Some people would say that in and of itself is the essence of leadership, that people are following you. That's leadership, some people think. He dealt with difficult people. He motivated his followers. He overcame obstacles. He stared down intimidation. All these ways, he's this great leader. And many people take the whole book and they just reduce it down to what can we learn about leadership from the book of Nehemiah? There's a couple of problems with that. First problem is if you are not naturally gifted as a leader and not all people are, then this book has nothing to say to you. If it's just about leadership and that's not really your thing, well, then you can just rip this one out and forget about it. The bigger problem is, do we really think that God put this book in the Bible only for the purposes of teaching us how to be good leaders? There's leadership principles to pull from the book, but I want to suggest to you that the book is in the Bible for a much bigger purpose than just telling us how to be good leaders. Listen, John Maxwell can do that. You don't only have to turn to the Bible for those answers. There's common grace and wisdom among people. They recognize what leadership is and how it works. Nehemiah is not just a book about leadership. Nehemiah is part of the story of the Old Testament. And it is one big story, right? All these characters we've talked about, Noah, Abraham, David, Solomon, Samuel, 
all the judges, all these prophets, they all fit together into one single story. And sometimes we miss that. Sometimes we read the Old Testament as it's just this random collection of tales mashed together and we don't know what they all have to do with each other. But it's one big story and everybody has their place. And Nehemiah fits into that story. And as we're going to see tonight, he plays an important role. So here's an opening quote from Mervyn Brenneman's commentary on Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther. He says this, Nehemiah was a genuine leader. Okay, We all agree he was a leader. Circle that word. He was an excellent administrator. He was a man of prayer. Circle that word. Mark it. We're going to come back to that idea. He exhibited many principles of sound administrative practice. His single-mindedness of purpose, his attention to detail, his willingness to delegate authority, his dedication to service, his dependence on God were combined in a man who can simply be labeled as a servant of God. Okay, All those are great. First half of that quote, all these things, we, we can look at Nehemiah and we can learn from his life. We can learn things that we ought to apply to our lives. Keep reading. He says, certainly Nehemiah's work in establishing the Jerusalem community, defending it against its neighbors and against syncretism, has left its mark on history. And what he's about to say is this. It's more than a story of leadership. He played a role, Nehemiah played a role in the unfolding story of God's people throughout the ages. Because of this community, because this community persevered, our Old Testament was completed and preserved. Because the Jewish people continued as instruments in God's redemptive plan, the Savior came and fulfilled God's great plan of salvation. So I hope by the time we finish, we look at his life and we say, here's some things we can learn along the way. Those are great. They're valuable. They're important. But ultimately, how does Nehemiah fit into the big picture and how does he point us to Jesus? Here's our Old Testament timeline. We've looked at this every week. Nehemiah comes way at the end. After the kingdom has been established, after the kingdom is split into two, northern kingdom and southern kingdom, after they've both been sent into exile and God begins to bring his people back to the promised land, that's where Nehemiah falls, right in this period we've called the return, and we're right on the heels of Jesus showing up. Let me just put these scriptures uh, for Old Testament context up on the screen, and then I'll show you some maps. Okay? We're not going to look at these scriptures, I just want to mention to you what's happening around Nehemiah's time. 2 Kings 17 and 2 Kings 24. Those are the two stories of the two nations, Israel first, Judah second, being conquered and sent into exile. The northern kingdom of Israel conquered in about 722 by the nation of Assyria. The southern kingdom of Judah conquered in about 586 by the, uh, the empire of Babylon. Both of them taken out into exile. You can read about that in 2 Kings. Ezra 1 to 6. Ezra is divided into two parts. The first half of Ezra tells about a group of exiles who come back with a man named Zerubbabel, and they come back to rebuild the temple. Cyrus sends them back, and they're coming back to rebuild the temple. Then there's a break in Ezra, and you can take the whole book of Esther and smash it right in the middle. That's where Esther takes place. And then you pick up on the backside with Ezra 7 to 10. This is when Ezra actually comes back. And his job, the temple's already built. Now they need somebody to come teach the law so they know what to do with this temple and how to worship God and how to serve God. So Ezra comes back to teach the law, and we're going to run into him tonight. Here's a couple of maps 
Uh, I've showed you these. I think when we talked about Esther, we put these up on the screen. Uh, these are four successive kingdoms in the ancient world, and you can see how they all fit into this storyline. The top left map is the empire of Assyria, and their capital was Nineveh up on the Tigris River, and you can see Judah over there on the left. This was the nation that came and conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and took all the best and the brightest out of Samaria, out of the capital city, and took them towards Nineveh. The next world empire was Babylon. Babylon came along. Judah was in decline. They conquered Judah in the south, and they took these exiles towards Babylon. The next one is Persia. The Persian Empire, you can see it's a little bit bigger. The map has zoomed out some. We're looking at a a bigger geographic area. And Susa is the capital. Susa is where the events we're about to read begin. Susa is where the story takes place in the book of Esther. And you can see they've conquered the the promised land, Judah down there on the left. And then the last empire is Greece. We're not going to get to them uh, tonight, but you can see that they conquer a similar uh, piece of real estate. So that just gives you an idea of what's going on in some of the world powers. Let's talk about Nehemiah, okay? We're going to break down his life into several stages and try to just see the, the overall picture of what happened in him and through him. Stage number one is Nehemiah the cupbearer. Nehemiah the cupbearer. And I'll just say this right out of the gate. We're going to read a few verses from chapter one. I don't know what comes into your mind when you think of a cup bearer. We have lots of different government officials at lots of different levels. Um, I heard somebody, I was listening to a podcast today. This guy lived up in Maine, and they were talking about some local elections in Maine, and they were talking about government positions. I have never heard these terms in my life. Um, I have a friend in Kentucky who just ran a, a primary race to be the magistrate in a certain district outside of Frankfurt. So we've got all these different government positions. As far as I know, we don't have cupbearers. And it almost sounds comical to me. I don't know how it sounds to you, but I almost get the picture of like some dopey guy carrying a cup around. Like I'm just here, I'm the water boy. I'm here to carry your cup, and when you're thirsty, I'm going to give you a drink. And Okay, in the ancient world, you think about the cupbearer in Egypt. You read about in Genesis, you think about Nehemiah the cupbearer. Don't think anything comical or silly or low level. If you want to bring it to the United States and think of a good example, I read several commentaries this week that compared it to the position in the United States of uh, the president's chief of staff. So this would be like John Kelly for the president of the United States. He's kind of the gatekeeper. He's kind of the guy that controls access to the president. Who gets to come in and have meetings? Who gets to have their concerns raised? Who gets to sort of vet who interacts with the president? And that essentially was Nehemiah's job. It's not some low-level, silly position. But he's a man with authority and a man who has the ear of the king. And so what happens? We're in Susa. If you look at uh, verse 1, we're talking about Susa, the capital. Nehemiah is there. And we're talking about a message that gets sent to Nehemiah. So he's in the capital city. He's living in exile. He's far, far away from home. And a message comes to him. And the message is, hey, back home, the remnant of the people who got left are having rough days. It is not going well for the people. The city looks like garbage. Everything's burned down. Everything's still ruined. They're not safe. They're not secure. Uh, They're at at, uh, 
uh, in danger of their enemies. They could just attack at any moment. Things are not good. The remnant is a shameful situation. Nehemiah hears this, and he begins to pray. And I just want to read his prayer. Look at Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 4. It says, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept, and I mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. That phrase, God of heaven, you see it an awful lot among the people who got sent into exile. Among the people who are no longer living in the promised land. They start to refer to God more as the God of heaven. And I think it makes sense, right? They're learning in a very important way. We used to live in the land, the promised land God was going to give us. We were safe, secure, we had our temple, we had our capital, we had our kingship, we had all this great stuff. Now we don't have any of that stuff. It's all been taken away from us. And all we have left is God. And he's not just the God of Judah, he's the God of heaven. He's a God over all the nations of the earth. He's just as in control in Susa or Nineveh or Babylon or any of these cities we wind up in. He is still in control. So he starts off praying before the God of heaven. And this is what he says. O Lord God of heaven, great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned against you. We have acted very corruptly against you. And we have not kept the commandments, the statutes, the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. That's exactly what had happened, right? He's acknowledging, we're guilty and you've done exactly what you said you were going to do. But if you, verse 9, if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today And grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And then he adds this detail. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Now part of me wishes we could just look at that prayer and break it down line by line and talk about everything he says. Here's the one thing I want to point out to you. What he really wants to come and ask God is, give me success when I go talk to this man. I'm about to go ask for something and I need your blessing or your favor to rest on this meeting. That's the one thing that he wants to ask God. And rather than just rush in and say to God, hey, this is what I need from you. He starts off mourning and weeping for days. Days. And he's fasting. And he's confessing sin. And he's not just pointing the finger at the people, but he's saying, it's me. And it's my father's house. We're guilty. And all that's happened is exactly what you said was going to happen. But I remember this promise that if we would repent, you would bring us back. And so I'm going in 
and I'm asking for favor in the sight of this man. So that's the prayer, Nehemiah the cupbearer. Stage number two, we're going to call travel. Travel. We're just going to read a few verses from chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 1. In the month of Nisan, the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and I gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing that you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city... The place of my father's graves lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. The king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone? When will you return? Keep that in mind, that, those two questions. How long will you be gone? And when will you come back? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple. And for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy, and the king granted me what I ask. Why? For the good hand of my God was upon me. So he goes before him, and they have this interaction. He says, look, I want to go back. I want to rebuild it. The whole thing's a mess, and I feel like I need to go back and do this. I promise I'm going to come back. He's given him a time, and the hand of God is on him. He answers his prayer, and he gets to go, and the king pays for all of it. In the rest of chapter 2, he basically travels back, and he gets to the city, and he kind of just scopes out the lay of the land. He kind of just walks around, evaluates the situation. He wants to see it for himself. All that in chapter 2 we're going to call travel. Next stage we're going to call work. The work actually begins. And I just want you to notice, we're not going to read these passages that describe the work. I just want you to notice, there's some work described in chapter 3 and 4, and then there's a little break. Something happens in there. And then there's some work in chapter 6 and 7, and then there's another break, a bigger break. And then it finishes up in chapter 12. And all along the way, there's all sorts of opposition. It ranges from Nehemiah being made fun of, being laughed at, Uh, It goes to threats where he has to set workmen who are out working to say, you keep your sword in one hand, you put your other hand on the brick, and you keep your eyes up, and you pay attention, and they rotate, and they come up with a system to, to protect themselves. There's an assassination attempt where they try to lure him out of the city and they, they have a plan to kill him. And they even send, they hire false prophets to go into the city and to say, well, the Lord says this, or the Lord says that, or the Lord says this. So there's all sorts, of, all sorts of attempts to make them stop working. Just flip to chapter 12 and let's see how it all kind of wraps up. Chapter 12, verse 27. says this. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem. So they rebuilt the whole thing and they have this big dedication ceremony. They sought the Levites and all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, thanksgiving, singing, cymbals, harps, lyres. 
And the sons of the singers gathered together from the district surrounding Jerusalem and from the village of the Netophathites. Corey mentioned this, um, I think it was last week when he talked about Samuel. You had this tribe of Levites who used to be in charge of carrying the ark around. Once they settled in the promised land, they're sort of out of a job. And those people basically became worship leaders. And there's this long chain of Levites who sort of take up this task of leading worship. And Nehemiah is saying, we got all those guys together. We called everybody in for this celebration. Verse 30 says, the priests and the Levites purified themselves. They purified the people in the gates and the wall. I brought up the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs to give thanks. One went to the south and uh, on the wall to the dung gate. And after them went Hoshiah and half the leaders of Judah. And he lists all these guys. And he says, look, we had this giant ceremony. Rebuilt the whole thing. We had choirs singing off two different walls. We had all the officials there. It's like a big ribbon-cutting ceremony. And everyone's there to celebrate and uh, give thanks for what had been accomplished. So all of that falls under the work. Also look at verse 43. It says, They offered great sacrifices that day, and they rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. That's an idea in verse 43. It's an idea. We already saw it in chapter 1. It's all the way through Nehemiah. Nehemiah will say, this happened because God made it happen. Right? I went to the king and I asked for this favor, and he gave me what I asked. Why? Because the good hand of God was upon me. It wasn't because I was so persuasive. It wasn't because I had a great speech worked up is because that was God's plan. And he says, look, the people came together. We had this great celebration. Everyone was rejoicing, the young, the old, the men, the women, everybody. But it wasn't because of anything that we had done. It's because God had done that in us, and God had done that through us. So that's the work. Now, a couple of little interludes here in the work. Stage number four we'll call justice. And we're not going to read it. It's short. You go back and look at it yourself in chapter five. Here's the gist of it. They go back and they start work. And Nehemiah figures out that some of the poor folks who got left in the land, remember when they sent a nation into exile, they left the riffraff and they took the educated, the powerful, the smart, the influential, the cultural leaders, all that kind of stuff, and they left the nobodies. So Nehemiah comes back and he looks around and he says, okay, there's a whole bunch of nobodies And there's a handful of power brokers. And the power brokers have come back and they're taking advantage of the poor people. They're charging them interest on loans. uh, They're foreclosing on them. They're not treating them fairly. They're playing a rigged game where these guys don't have a chance. It would have been very easy for Nehemiah to say, that's not my problem. I've been sent on a job. I have a timeline, right? He's already told the king, this is when I'm coming back. So the clock is ticking. He doesn't have all the time in the world. It would have been very easy for him to say, I have something to accomplish and I can't be bothered with this right now. And I'll just be honest with you. I hope this doesn't just crush you. That's the inclination of your pastor is to say, I have something to get done. I have something to check off my list. I cannot be bothered with this right now. I don't have time to waste on that. 
And one lesson that I take away from Nehemiah, and I think some of us need it maybe more than others, is people are more important than tasks. As hard as it is for me to say that, because I like to check my tasks off, people are more important than tasks. And there's a great story written by J.R. Tolkien. You've heard of Tolkien. Tolkien wrote Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit and all that stuff. He also wrote a little short story called Leaf by Niggle. Leaf by Niggle. And it's a really, it's a neat story and it's got a lot of different application. But here's the basic story, okay, Leaf by Niggle. There's this guy, he's an artist, and he wants to paint a masterpiece. He has this goal, before I die, I want to paint this massive landscape. And he sees it in his mind, what he wants to paint. He knows what it needs to look like in the end. So he starts off painting, and he starts working on this tree. And he paints, and he paints, and he paints. But as he's painting this first tree in this massive canvas, his neighbors keep coming over, and they need things from him. They need a ride across town, or I need you to help me, something broke in my house, or hey, could you run me over here? They, they just keep bothering him, and he's really perturbed that he can't get his important work done because all these people keep showing up. And at the end of the story, all Niggle has done on this big painting is one tree, and the rest of it's done. I mean, it's not done, it's unfinished, it's just blank. And he comes to the end of his life, and he dies, and he sort of thinks, well, what a waste. I didn't get it done. And one of the things, the story talks about Niggle on the other side of death in the afterlife. One of the things, he learns many things, but one of the things he learned is, I did do the work that I was supposed to do. In my brain, that work was this big masterpiece that I thought was so important. But in God's mind, part of the work that I was supposed to do was take my neighbor and help my neighbor and be there for my neighbor and waste all this time on all these people. And one of the things you see here in the life of Nehemiah is that he has something very important to do. He believes that God has sent him to do it. He knows he's on a timeline. And he still says, people are more important than this wall. And he basically puts the whole construction project on hold and he gets everyone together and he says, we're not laying another brick until we get this right. You guys can't treat people that way. We're not going to do that anymore. It doesn't line up with how God wants us to live as his covenant people and he sets the whole thing right. It didn't last, but he tried. That's justice. Next stage is revival. And this is another interlude. And we are going to read a little bit of this. There's a revival. Look at Nehemiah 8. Let's read verse 1 to 8. This is where Ezra pops into the story. Ezra's been there a while, you remember. He came back with a group of exiles, and his job was to teach the law. So he's been there doing that. Nehemiah shows up, and we read this in Nehemiah 8.1. All the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard, on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday. In the presence of men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. 
And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah and Shema and Aniah and Uriah and Hilkiah and Messiah on his right hand and all these other guys on his left hand. Verse 5, he opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And he opened it. As he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. This was not a Baptist group, but they're lifting up their hands. They bowed their heads, and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And Jeshua, and Bani, and Sherebiah, and Jamin, and Akub, and Shabbatai, and Hodiah, all these guys, all these Levites, they helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. This is the beginning of the revival, and the key to it all is the Word of God. That's the key to every true revival in history, is the clear, bold, unapologetic proclamation of God's Word. You don't need flashy programs, you don't need big, huge celebrities, you don't need, you know, larger-than-life personalities. You don't need any of that stuff. What you need is people who pray and confess sin and people who will preach the Word. And when you take those two things in history and you combine them, those two things are always there when a true, not just an emotional flash-in-the-pan type revival, but when a true revival breaks out is prayer and confessing sin and the proclamation of God's word. And those things happen, and a revival breaks out, like an awakening and a revival and people coming back to God, people confessing sin, and they start off and they're weeping and they're grieving, and they say, no, 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 don't do that. We're supposed to be having a celebration. And they, they're broken when they've read, they've read the law and they've looked at their lives and they say, we have totally failed. We've totally fallen short. No wonder God sent us into exile. Why in the world did he bring any of us back? And they're confessing their sin and the Levites are spreading out among the people and they're explaining and they're reading scripture and they're giving the sense. And it's this massive revival breaks out. And I just want you to see a a little bit of chapter 9. Chapter 9 in my Bible, right above verse 1, it says, The people of Israel confess their sin. When God's people are confronted with his word, confession should follow. That's true whether you've been a Christian for a week or a month or 10 years or 20 20 years. When you hold the Word of God up to your face like a mirror, it exposes you. And Ezra, the scribe, stands up and he preaches the Word of God and he exposes the people. And they're moved to confess their sin. In this long prayer of chapter 9, if you want to know how to confess sin, you should look at Nehemiah 9. And you should read it, and you should study it, and you should think through it. In the first part of Nehemiah, chapter 9, they just go through and they list all the great things God's done for them. You did this, you did this, you did this, you did this. They list all those things out. Look at chapter 9, verse 26. Here's the turn in the prayer. You saved us, you redeemed us, the exodus, the manna, uh, all that stuff. You did all these great things for us. Nehemiah 9.26 Nevertheless, they were disobedient. And they rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back. And they killed your prophets who warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. 
And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven. According to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so that they had dominion over them. When they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven. Many times you delivered them according to your mercies. You warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and they did not obey your commandments. They sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he'll live by them. They They turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and they would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the land. Nevertheless, in your great mercies you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and a merciful God. And it goes on. It's a great, great, great prayer of confession. And at the end of it, they make a covenant. Now this is interesting. They come to the end of this prayer of confession. So you, you get the picture here? First, Ezra stands up on the platform and he reads the law all morning long. Everyone pays attention. Everyone standing up. He reads the law. The Levites are out among the people and they're preaching. They're giving the sense. They're explaining it. The people are just broken by their sin and they start weeping. And they start confessing sin and they come together as one person to confess. God, you have done to us exactly as we deserve. And then the interesting thing is they gather together and they make a covenant with God. Now, go back and read through the Old Testament. Read about Abraham and read about David. Read about Noah. God does the covenant making. God comes to those people and he says, I'm making a covenant with you. I'm putting my bow in the sky. Abraham, I'm making a covenant with you, and this is the sign of it. David, I don't need you to make a house for me. I'm going to make a house for you. I'm going to make a covenant with you. And in this instance, the people gather together. I'll let you decide if you think it's right or wrong, but they make a covenant with God. And I just want you to see two of the things, the very first two things they promise to God in this covenant. Nehemiah 10, verse 30 and 31. First two promises. We will not give our daughters to the people of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Number one, we will not intermarry with pagan people. We won't do it. Number two, if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day and will forego the crops of the seventh year in exaction of every debt. We will keep the Sabbath. We will not intermarry and we will keep the Sabbath. We promise we will do both of those things. Just file that away and we'll come back to it. Last stage of Nehemiah's life is his return. And that's chapter 13. Nehemiah's return. You remember he told the king who he worked for, I'm coming back. This is what I'm going to go do and this is what I'm coming back. Chapter 13 verse 6 says, after some time I asked leave of the king and I came to Jerusalem. So he had to go back and he's there with the king for a while. And then he says to the king, hey, I'd like to go check. I went, you paid for it, it was great. I came back, I'm working for you. I'd just like to go back, make a quick trip to see how things are going back in Jerusalem. And you remember where he left off. He left off with the preaching and the confession and the people make this covenant We're not going to intermarry. We're not going to work on the Sabbath. We're going to keep it holy. And that's where he leaves. And then he 
comes back. He says, I want to go back and check on things. And it's really bad when he comes back. It's really bad. The end of the book, like everything builds in Nehemiah. And it's so great at this party. And they have the confession and the preaching and the covenant. And I think all the people who look at Nehemiah and say, Nehemiah is a great model of leadership. They forget that there's a last chapter to the book. Because at the last chapter, you come back and you realize everything you worked for fell apart. Like this great leader, we model ourselves after all these leadership things. He came back to the end to check out what he had done, and it was all falling apart. So a couple of examples. Chapter 13, verse 7. A man named Tobiah is living in the temple. And if you've read the rest of the book, you know Tobiah was one of the guys who tried to stop the work every step along the way. He was Nehemiah's biggest opponent. And Nehemiah comes back and he says, you've let him move into the temple. He tried to stop it. And you're letting him live here. And he doesn't like it and he does something about it. Verse 10, they're not paying their tithes. He said, where's all the Levites? Where's all the guys who are supposed to be working here? Well, we can't pay them, so they don't show up. Why can't you pay them? Nobody's paying their tithe. So nobody's here. It's just all falling apart. Look at verse 15. Verse 15. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses. And which day were they doing it on? Sabbath. It says, we just signed the covenant. You said you, weren't gonna, you were going to keep the Sabbath. I come back and you're making wine on the Sabbath. That was the first thing we promised not to do. Look at verse 23. In those days I also saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half the children spoke the language of Ashdod. They couldn't speak the language of Judah, but the language of each people. You, we said right in the covenant we weren't going to break the Sabbath and we weren't going to marry these people. I've been gone for a few months and I come back and it's all been torn apart. So that's the last stage of his life is this return, and it's really kind of sad when you read it in the context of the story. So let's talk about Nehemiah, negatives and positives. Here's the positive. He was a student of the Word, and he was a man of prayer, and God used him to reestablish the city of Jerusalem after the exile. He's a student of the Word. He's a man of prayer, and he's used by God to reestablish this city after the exile. We already read Nehemiah 8, 1. The reason he picked, of all the people he could have picked, the reason he picked Ezra is because of a detail you read in Ezra seven ten that says, Ezra the scribe set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes in Israel. That's a description of Ezra. I'm going to study the law and I'm going to do it and I'm going to teach it. And Nehemiah looks around and he says, you're the guy that's going to be the, the preacher at this service. The guy who studied, the guy who does it, and the guy who's given his life to teach it. So it reveals something of Nehemiah's heart. Um, he's a man of prayer. And I just want you to go back to chapter 1 real quick. I want you to think about Nehemiah as a man of prayer. There's a verse in the New Testament. It's 1 Thessalonians 5.17. It says, pray without ceasing. Uh, most most kids, when they have a challenge to memorize a Bible verse, they pick the one in John that says Jesus wept because it's only two verse, two words. This one's only three. Pray without ceasing. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. Nehemiah gives us a really good picture of what that actually looks like in real life. 
Okay, here's the picture. Look at chapter 1, verse 4. I heard the report, I heard the words, and I sat down and I wept and mourned for days, and I fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. Meaning, I just stopped everything else that I was doing so I could pray. And as believers, there has to be times in our lives where we do that. Not where we multitask pray, not where we pray, well, I like to pray while I'm mowing the grass. Well, I like to pray while I'm, while I'm driving to Midland. Well, I like to pray while I'm working out. Well, great, pray at all those times. But there's got to be some time where you don't do anything but pray. And it doesn't necessarily have to be days like Nehemiah did. There's got to be time where you stop and you're not doing anything else. You're not distracted by anything else, but you're just focused to stop and pray. And Nehemiah does that. He does it here and he does it later in chapter 9 when he leads this prayer of confession. But then look at chapter 2, right? He has spent days praying about this. Give me favor in the sight of this man. Give me success in the sight of this man. He's done it for days. Fasting, praying, laying out. The king said to me, this is chapter 2, verse 4. What are you requesting? Cut to the chase and tell me what you want. So I prayed to the God of heaven. One more time. It wasn't long. This was the multitasking prayer. He didn't stop what he was doing to kneel down and do a Tim Tebow right there in the presence of the king. He just said... Okay, i got to pray one more time, and then I'm going to ask him. And that's the two sides of it, right? Devoted time where all you're doing is praying, and the flip side of that, a constant running dialogue with God where you're constantly talking to him. And Nehemiah does that all the way through the book. People come in opposition, he starts praying about it. People make fun of him, he starts praying about it. People threaten his life, he starts praying about it. Everything goes really well and they finish the job, he starts praying about it. His natural impulse every step along the way is to pray, just throwing up these prayers spontaneously. Most of us tend to do really good at one or the other. Some of us are really good, maybe you're like me and you're task-oriented. You say, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to turn prayer into a task, I'm going to put it on my planner and I'm going to have to check it off every day and I got to do it. So I'm going to block off time and I'm not going to do anything but pray for this period, however long it is. But then you're done with that. And if you're like me, you tend to just sort of check it off and move past it and you don't forget about it. I mean, you don't think about it during the day. You just forget about it. Some of you say, well, prayer, I just, I like to pray all throughout the day. And what you mean is I don't ever stop to pray. I only give God my moments here and there when I have them. I'm way too busy to do that. And I just try to throw them up while I'm driving. or while I'm, That's great. Do that. But also do the other. And those of us who are really good at blocking out time to just do that, you've got to keep that prayer running all the way through the day. And Nehemiah does both of them. He shows us what it looks like to pray without ceasing. There's times where that's all you're doing. And it's important. And there's times where you just do it spontaneously all the way through the day, or through the week. So he's a man of prayer, and God uses him to reestablish this city. Right? This city is in shambles. The people are inter- intermarrying, and God uses him to bring some stability to this city. Remember where we're at on the timeline. Can you put up on the screen the timeline of the Old Testament? Right? We're, right on, we're so close to Jesus coming, you can almost smell him. I mean, he is right, the manger is right there. But there's a real danger at this point in the story. 
And the danger is that this riffraff of, of exiles that God brings back, that they just forget the law and they don't keep the Sabbath and they intermarry and they just become like all the other nations. And they can't do that. The Messiah has got to come from these people. The line has to be preserved. Listen, this is a, a crisis moment in Nehemiah. It's just like in the book of Genesis when you read about a famine in the land that's about to kill Jacob's family. You say, how can they die? This is the promised family. The, the Messiah's got to come from them, from the line of Abraham. And God comes through, and there's a plan to save these people. It's the exact same situation in Nehemiah. These chosen people are in danger of just sort of dissipating into all the other nations. And here comes Nehemiah, sent by God, to the rescue in a sense, to kind of circle the wagons. Hey, well, wait a minute. We've got to rebuild this wall. We can't let people just march in here and attack us. And we've got we to gotta recenter on the law. Ezra, get up there and start preaching. And he preserves these people as a people until the Messiah comes. Here's the negative. Nehemiah was not able to change the hearts of the people in Jerusalem. I don't know that that's a negative so much as it is just an admission that he was not the one they were looking for. He could not change their hearts. In the end of the book, I'll let you go back and read chapter 13. The end of the book is, I don't know if it's sad or comical. But as he goes around and he sees all the sin, here's how Nehemiah responds to it. Remember, he's been there. They built the wall. They celebrated. He goes back. He comes back to check on them, and everything's falling apart. They've broken the covenant they made. They're just living exactly like they were before. One of the things he does is he starts to threaten to lay hands on them. Like he says, he starts looking to buy in some of these guys in the eye, and he says, I'm going to lay hands on you. That's not like a prayer at the front of the church, let me lay hands on you and pray for you. That's like, I'm going to beat the snot out of you if you don't stop. Some of you are like, I've said that to my kids before. I know exactly what he's, what he's talking about. I'm going to lay hands on you. Then he starts cursing them. Like he starts saying four-letter words, whatever they are in Hebrew. He starts saying them. Half the people can't understand them because they speak the language of Ashdod, but he's saying them anyways. He's letting them have it. And then it says that he started beating some of them. He started hitting people, like physically, laying hands on people. And it says he pulled some of their hair out. He actually came to some of these people, and he was so mad with them, he grabbed the hair on their head and yanked fistfuls of it out. He makes them take an oath. Remember, they made the covenant again, and he sits them down and he says, you are going to take an oath. Whether you like it or not, you're going to take it. You're going to promise to obey the Lord. Say it. Say it, or I'll pull more of your hair out. He chases people out of the temple complex. Like, they're running for their life, scared of Nehemiah, and he's chasing them. It's, he's literally trying to grab people by the spiritual shirt collar and shake sense into them. And you know as well as I do, it doesn't work that way. But he's so frustrated. Everything that he worked for, the wall's still standing, that's great. But it wasn't really about the wall in the first place. It was about the people. And they've gone right back into their filth. And he's just trying to shake spiritual, spiritual sense into them. And it's a reminder that he was not able to change their hearts. So how does he point us to Jesus? 
Nehemiah's inability to change the people forces us to look elsewhere for the fulfillment of God's new covenant promises. And I'm going to let you look up Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. Would you put up my my timeline slide one more time? Okay, look at this timeline. Start with the monarchy, right? You got Saul, then you go to David, then you go to Solomon, then you got Rehoboam and Jeroboam and the kingdom splits and it's divided in two. And the northern kingdom is all the way wicked and Judah is mostly wicked and the northern kingdom gets sent into exile and then Judah gets sent into exile and they're both gone. And during that period of the exile, two of the prophets that preached to the people were named Jeremiah and Ezekiel. They were prophets during the exile. God's people had been kicked out of the promised land. And one of the things Jeremiah said is, Jeremiah 31, God is going to make a new covenant with you. It's not like Nehemiah 10 where you make the covenant to him. God's going to make the covenant with you. And it's going to be new. It's not going to be like the old one. It's going to be different. All the people are going to know the Lord. And Ezekiel comes along in that same period, that same period of exile. And Ezekiel says things like this. I'm about to make a new covenant with the house of Israel. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take your heart of stone out and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. And I'm going to move you to keep my commandments. It's not going to be something you do. It's not going to be something your leader does. It's going to be something I do inside of you. I'm going to change your hearts. I'm going to help you and empower you and enable you to keep my commandments. Okay? So if you're these people living in exile, you're listening to Jeremiah and you're listening to Ezekiel and you're thinking, okay, God's going to make a new covenant with us. New covenant. He's going to bring us back. It's going to be different. It's going to be better. God's going to do this great work. Well, here come guys like Zerubbabel, and we're building the temple, and here comes Ezra, and we're having Bible studies, and here comes Nehemiah, and we got a wall all of a sudden. And these people are thinking, hey, maybe this is it. Jeremiah said, we got a new covenant coming, and Ezekiel said, we got a new covenant coming. And there's a temptation every time one of these leaders rises up for the people to say, maybe this is the one. We look back on it, and you never think about Nehemiah being the Messiah, but they didn't know. They're thinking, maybe this is the guy. He's, we're doing the covenant thing, Nehemiah 10. Maybe this is what Jeremiah and Ezekiel were talking about. And you come to Nehemiah 13, and you realize Nehemiah is not the guy. He is not the guy to establish this new covenant. He does not have the ability to reach in spiritually and take out a heart of stone and give somebody a heart of flesh and to move them to keep God's commandments and to love God with all their heart. He can't do it. All he can do out is yank out hair and chase people and hit them with stuff. That's not good enough. That's not what Ezekiel promised, and that's not what Jeremiah promised. So when you see that, you say, i got to look elsewhere. i got to look forward for the one that's going to bring this new covenant. One last thought about Nehemiah and his prayers. I just want you to see the contrast here. Nehemiah's final prayer in the book, if you look at Nehemiah 13, the end of verse 31, is remember me, O God, for good. Remember me, O my God, for good. Contrast that with Jesus' final prayer that was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew 27. Nehemiah prays that a lot throughout the book. Something happens and somebody persecutes him or he accomplishes something and he says, God, remember this. Remember that I did this. 
And that's a fine prayer. There's nothing wrong with praying that. But in the end, his focus is, remember this for my good. And as a contrast, the one who brings the new covenant, the true hero, Jesus, at the end of his life, isn't praying, remember me and do this. But he's praying, why have you forsaken me? And I want you to see that those two prayers go together. I want you to see the reason Nehemiah could pray, remember me for good, is because someday somebody came and died on a cross, forsaken and cut off and separated from the Father, forgotten. And that's true for you and me, just like it's true for Nehemiah. The reason we can come boldly to God in prayer and say, God, remember me for good, is because Jesus was forgotten and cut off. He took our place so that we could be remembered. He was forgotten so that God could remember us for good. He was cursed so that we could be blessed. And he's the one that brings this new covenant. And in the end, you look at Nehemiah and you say, here's a guy that God used to put things in place so that these new covenant promises could be fulfilled. He kept this people together as a people just long enough, this ragtag bunch of rebels. He kept them together just long enough so that the Messiah could come and God could bring this new covenant. And really, even though we live on the other side of the cross, that's all we do. You and I don't have the power to change anybody. We don't have the power to save anybody. We don't have the power to convince anybody of anything. We don't have the power to win any kind of spiritual argument that's going to be saving in somebody's life. We just have the ability to say, this is the covenant. This is what God has done through Jesus Christ. He sent his son to die, taking the curse that you deserved so that you could be remembered for good. And God's job, the Spirit's job, is to bring conviction and to change hearts. We don't have to go around chasing people and beating people and shaking spiritual sense into people. We just are heralds of this good news, this good gospel message that God has done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And the hero has come. And the hero is not Nehemiah, but it's Jesus. So there you go. We'll call that a wrap on our heroes. And uh, it's a good place to end, right there at the end of the Old Testament story as we're ready for Jesus to come.